Hi everyone, I'm John Offord, I'm a broadcaster based in the UK and welcome to Different Minds, a podcast series that looks at neurodiversity, the different ways our brains can work and interpret information. Today we're going to talk about the two faces of narcissism, in other words the differences between covert and overt narcissism. I'm honoured to be joined once again by the author of The Covert Passive Aggressive Narcissist, Debbie Mirza from the USA. Debbie, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me back. No worries, good to be speaking to you again. I'm also delighted to be joined by Linda Barnes, who is also based in the UK like me. Linda is a very active administrator of Debbie's Facebook group, which is called The Healing After Experiencing Covert Passive Aggressive Narcissism. Linda, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you, John. Debbie, tell us more about the Facebook group and how you guys started working together and what the aims of the group are. Yeah, I started this um, online support group on Facebook um, and made it a private group just for people to come gather to talk to each other, to get to share stories. Because when you're dealing with a covert narcissist, you tend to feel very alone and very confused. So it's a place where people can gather to connect with each other and make friends and ask, is this normal? Have you experienced this too? I'm confused about this. You know, what videos have helped you? What books have helped you? So that type of thing. And and, and so just tell me about how you came to work with Linda in the UK. Um, Yeah, just tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, so after starting this group, um, it was over two years ago, Linda reached out to me and she had some really interesting questions for me. And that initial introduction turned into many conversations and ended up being a really cherished friendship for me. And so I asked her at some point if she'd be interested in being uh, an administrator and helping me with this group. Cause I, as it was growing, I started seeing, okay, I'm, I need help <laughs> because, because it's on an online group. Um, we're very careful. We do as much as we can to keep it the safest place it possibly can be. Um, because a lot of online groups I find are just people just unleashing their rage and um, ranting and really kind of angry and sometimes disturbing posts. So this one, I really wanted to keep it supportive and kind and respectful. Um, so I asked Linda and she very kindly agreed to help me out. And so she's been, um, she's quickly become like my lead administrator and she's very active and, and just a a beautiful, helpful part of this group. And she's, you know, experienced, um, decades of covert narcissistic abuse herself. And she's done extensive work on her own recovery and healing and, um, and has done a lot of, of, a ton of research on the topic herself. So she's just been this wonderful, well, wonderful help and a wonderful friend to me. Brilliant. So let's go back to basics then, Debbie. Can you just tell us what is a narcissist? And you know, some people say, is that not just a selfish person? Right. That That's the, the typical or the most widespread view of narcissism. Cause, and that's what makes it more confusing too, to people that actually deal with someone with narcissistic personality disorder is I think, especially in our selfie generation, (laughs) um, we have a lot of, you know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, I was with a narcissist too, or oh yeah, she's such a narcissist, he's such a narcissist. But the true meaning in the DSM-5, 
um, of narcissistic personality disorder. And I think I'll go ahead and read. There are nine traits for um, someone to be an, uh, have narcissistic personality disorder, and they have to have at least five of these traits. And so I'll read them, and then I'm sure we'll get into a conversation as to now why it gets confusing when you have a covert narcissist, because oftentimes you'll read these traits wondering if you're with a narcissist. Um, and you'll go, well, no, I don't really see, well, no, they're not like that. They're kind of quiet or no. So it'll be interesting as people are listening to this for, if you find yourself checking the boxes, like, yep, he's like this, she's like this. Um, then they probably have a lot of overt traits. And if you find yourself listening and thinking kind of, well, no, I'm not sure about that one well, I can see that a little bit, <laughs> then you might be dealing with someone more on the covert end. So here are the nine traits. Uh, one, they have a grandiose sense of self. Two, they are preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Number three, they believe um, that he or she is special and unique and can only be understood or should associate with other special or high status people or institutions. Number four, they require excessive admiration. Number five, they have a sense of entitlement. Number six, um, they are interper interpersonally exploitative. For example, they take advantage of others to achieve their own ends. Number seven, they lack empathy. They're, you know, unwilling to recognize or identified with feelings and needs of others. Number eight, they are envious of others or believe that others are envious of them. And the final one is they show arrogant, haughty uh, behaviors or attitudes. So that's listed in the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. That's what DSM-5 is. So... What is the difference between a covert and an overt narcissist then, Debbie? Yeah, so both the covert and overt have the exact same traits, uh, but they manifest very differently, very different. So like an overt type um, will yell at you, will call you names, will have behavior that to most people is obviously bad or abusive or cruel. A covert person will do will be cruel, but in very cloaked, covert, underhanded ways, and in ways that you don't, you may not recognize for years and sometimes decades, because these people tend to be the nice people, <laughs> the charming people. Sometimes they can be humanitarians and, um, you know, the, the mother at the, I don't know if you call this PTA in the UK, in America, it's like the the mother that's really involved in the school and, you know, the dad or the mom that coaches soccer and the pillars of the community. Oftentimes these are covert narcissists and they have narcissistic traits, but you wouldn't automatically look at them and say that's a narcissist. And that's what makes it so incredibly confusing because the way they abuse you emotionally and psychologically goes unnoticed for years. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about, there's so many nuances to this, but just to give people a general idea of that's 
the core difference. Sure. And I, I just want to say at this point, it's worth mentioning that obviously you guys um, asked the readers of your Facebook group to to contribute to this podcast today, which is really useful. And, and, and we've taken some of those questions, which we're going to help facilitate this conversation today. And so that's really useful. Thank you for that. The next question then is, um, you know, how can a parent? So, I mean, one of the questions was, how can a parent be both a covert and an overt narcissist? And uh, can you give specific behavioural examples of that? And that question is to, to both of you. Yeah, I'll just tag on a little bit about the differences because I think it might help as we go into this, if, if that's okay. Exactly as you say, Debbie, yes. Um, it, it's how it manifests. It's, it's how it looks to people uh, that's very, very different. You know, the overt narcissist is um, very much open, upfront, in your face. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. Like it or like it not. Um, you know, supreme confidence and arrogance, really. Whereas the covert is very much like that, but presents um, as a completely different opposite, polar opposite person. So, um, you know, that's what presents the real difficulties to people. What you see with a covert is definitely not what you're getting. <laughs> um, it's very, very different. Uh, it's all based on a deception, basically. And um, it's, it's insidious behavior behind it all. Um, which is the problem um, here for people and, what, and one of the main reasons it's so difficult to see um, the clues in the name um, covert is hidden so um, you know the, and there are some distinct differences in that in terms of how um, the covert will react to circumstances as opposed to an overt and one of the main ones is and this causes real confusion for people is is coverts are genuinely um, highly sensitive and when I say that, I mean in terms of their own feelings. So not necessarily for your feelings at all, but they're highly sensitive in terms of their own feelings. You'll very often see a covert narcissist cry, you know, uh, in, a, in a distraught manner, um, really distressed. But it's because of some kind of narcissistic wound. It's their, themselves responding to their own feelings rather than anything else that they might be doing to you or upsetting you. And that's very often confused with empathy. Because you're seeing somebody actually, re, you know, really reacting uh, in, in very often in a very dramatic manner. But it's in response to their own feelings, how they're feeling about themselves. So um, it really throws people off uh, off track uh, in, in terms of that particularly. And there are a number of others that I'm sure will um, will come up uh, against as we, we go along. But, you know, a parent can be covert or overt, just like anyone else. Um, the, the fact that they're a parent really is is really neither here nor there. And, um, again, I think people get confused in trying to put people in boxes here with this. People tend to think you're either overt or you're covert. Um, but, you know, you can be both. People switch from one to the other very, very frequently. It's not at all uncommon. And certainly, you know, even with a covert who is, is doing everything they can to maintain this false image of who they are, once, um, certainly once people begin to be realising there's some kind of issue here and we start to question some of the things that they're, they're saying and doing, then that can slip very quickly and that covert behaviour can become extremely overt. So I think, my, you know, my first comment to that really would be, before I pass it back to Debbie, is that, you know, it doesn't matter what the nature of the relationship is, whether you're a parent, whether it's a, it's a manager at work, whether it's an intimate partner, it really doesn't matter. Um, a narcissist is a narcissist 
um, but they do actually present different faces to different people based on what they feel that that, that need that that person may be able to feel at that particular moment in time. Really interesting. So Debbie, then, can you... Is, is is there an example then of how someone might be covert at one particular point and then suddenly switch to being overt? Yeah, definitely. And I'll, I'll use an illustration of a parent, what it might look like as a parent. And, and I 100% agree with everything Linda just said, um, that it doesn't matter what the relationship is. But I'll give you an example that looks like a parent. And then maybe I'll, I'll think of another one, like a dating one or something. Um, so a parent, so this is a covert act um, that's very devaluing and demeaning without you noticing that that's what's happening is oftentimes a parent will say to the child, let's say it's an older child, um, will say, or, you know, an adult child will say, you know, I'm really concerned about you taking on this new venture, this new job, because I know you tend to get really tired. And I, I know that sometimes you don't work as fast or, you know, as they need you to, or you're kind of quiet when you need to be more extroverted. And I'm just really concerned. And I just wanted to bring this up to you because I really care about you. So like, if you really look at that, it it's, this is where it gets confusing, especially when it's a parent, because your parent is supposed to be your advocate, your nurturer, your caretaker. Um, and when they're covert, you know, and overt, you've experienced a lot of loving moments with them. So it's, it's, you're, you're trying to filter, like, is this love? Is this caring? Because what's happening is their words are sounding like they're caring about you. And so you take that at, at face value, because you're someone who trusts people. Um, you're not feeling good inside but you can't figure out why you're feeling disempowered. And now you're feeling worried about yourself and you were excited about this job that you got or this business that you're starting. And, um, but now you're questioning, do you have what it takes? You know, yes. Well, you, you have had health issues and was this wise? Did you do the right thing? Oh gosh. You know? And so, what happens is you leave this conversation where you can't blame your parent for anything because they didn't say anything mean, um, but you leave completely disempowered. And so you end up feeling that it's your fault. You're the problem. You're the issue. Why can't you just be normal? Why do you have these health issues? Why are you tired all the time? You know, um, can you trust yourself? So that's a very covert way of manipulating someone, um, then that can follow by the adult child deciding not to take the whatever advice, you know, maybe, maybe it was more clear, like, I'm concerned about this, the parent saying, I think you should do this instead. And so maybe the adult child then thinks about it and, and has strength in them and, and thinks, no, I'm actually feeling really good about this track I'm on. So they decide to go with their heart and their mind and their decision. And then the parent discards them because of this, because the truth is the advice they were giving was all about them. It wasn't true concern for their, for their daughter or son. Um, 
it was all about them and the fact that their child decided not to use their advice is an attack on them and they don't look good, you know, in their own mind. And so they discard the child to punish them for not making the, you know, parent the center of attention. So how might a child be affected then if they have narcissistic parents? Yeah. So when you have a narcissistic parent, you parent, you do have, you do end up having a lot of self-doubt and a lot of, you know, self-doubt as far as your ability to function in this world and a lot of feelings of what's wrong with me. You know, why do other people seem okay? Why do they just go along and it seems like things work out for them or they just easily get the job or they talk to people socially and they're so comfortable with it and I'm not. So a lot of low self, low self-esteem comes from having a narcissistic parent health issues come from having a narcissistic parent. Um, yeah, a lot of self-doubt, a lot of wonder, like, do I have what it takes? And sometimes you can have a narcissistic parent will either be, or a combination of both, either be very uninvolved in your life, or I've seen where some are very overly involved to the point where they do your homework for you because they want to make sure you, you are the star pure pupil you know, in your school, and they micromanage everything that you do, because you're a reflection of them. And so that can make you feel like you don't have what it takes, you know, to be a person in this world. And it also, when you're with a narcissistic parent that makes things about themselves and paints certain pictures for you, the world ends up you don't feel safe in this world. The world ends up feeling like a very scary place, you know, in a very negative place. And you start taking on um, beliefs that your parents had. So it's because you weren't, when you're raised by a narcissistic parent, you don't have emotional safety. So you don't feel like it's okay to fully be yourself. You don't believe that being your full self is wanted in this world, you know, so you learn to become what your parents want you to be. Um, And there's, I could go on and on, but (laughs) there's just so much that there's so much effect, powerful, debilitating effect that comes from having a parent who's a narcissist, having a lover, a spouse, a partner, a boss, a friend, you know, they're, it's just incredibly, um, debilitating the re- the results, the effects of these relationships. Could, could a child themselves go on to become a narcissist if they had narcissistic parents? Is, could that happen? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's not guaranteed. It's interesting how we, you know, you can have three very different people be raised by the same person and end up coming out very, you know, becoming very different. One can end up becoming narcissistic like their parent. One can work on themselves and do a lot of healing and decide they want to help the world in some way. Um, One can end up being just very quiet and retreating from the world. So yeah, it's not guaranteed, but yes, that can definitely happen. So Linda, so how can we be in these abusive relationships for such a long time and not know that we are being abused? 
Um, well, I think really because it is so hidden and it's insidious, you know, and um, we generally by by this time we formed a relationship if it's, if it's an intimate relationship, certainly um, as an adult, and we've fallen in love. We've been through a whole love bombing phase, and um, you know we're very attached, and we are deeply, truly connected uh, with this individual. So, you know, one of the key things for this is who would ever want to believe that the person that you should really feel um, most comfortable with in life, um, who you should be able to trust with every aspect of your life, that actually none of that is true. The the whole of the situation is an illusion and, you know, that you're actually being subjected to controlling manipulative abuse um, from day one. It's just not within our comprehension. So I think that, you know, that's it's a real biggie. Um, if it's something you've never even considered, and for lots of people, um, you, you know, it's just not on the radar. Certainly for myself, in in terms of that, you know, my, my understanding of narcissism, uh, I'm going back quite some years now because it's become a common throwaway phrase these days, um, which incidentally is a, is a pet hate of mine um, because it just diminishes really you know, some of the real horrendous situations and experiences that people have at the hands of narcissists, be they covert or overt, but particularly covert. Um, but it's just so confusing. You know, the whole, the tactics that are used um, are designed to confuse. There is no consistency. There, there is no constant that we can grab hold of. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're, we're dealing with constant issues that are, that are thrown at us. And it's very cleverly done. Um, you know, the gaslighting that takes place. I don't know if people are familiar with some of these um, phrases. It does actually feel sometimes that, um, you know, you, you're walking into a situation where you suddenly realise that this has happened. And then we're walking into another situation where we suddenly need to learn all about narcissism. And there's a whole glossary of terms about, you know, what happens and what doesn't happen. Linda, just remind us what gaslighting is again. Well, gaslighting is when, you know, there may, there may be some kind of situation there. Um, you've, there's an issue. You've raised an issue. Um, and it's a case of, you know, you've just said something that's really upset me there. You know, can we discuss it? You know, and it's like, no, I didn't upset you. You upset me. It's a turning around of a situation and and uh, in such a way as to make you question your own reality. You know, that didn't happen. You've You've misheard. You've misunderstood. You know, there's something wrong with your perception of, of what, whatever that situation is. Um, and because we tend to be, um, you know, self-aware self generally and reflective people, we do tend to take on board that perhaps there's something that, you know, we've not been clear about. Maybe we have misunderstood, you know, and that's played for all it's worth in these scenarios, you know, and that can go on and on and on. And what I think what's, what helps it to work as well, um, certainly did with me, is there's always, always somewhere in what's being said, the tiniest grain of truth. So there's always something there. Now, it, it can be completely mm -hmm. twisted, perverted, turned around into something completely that doesn't look anything like what the conversation started out with. But there is always that grain of truth. So it causes that doubt. Because you think, okay, well, yes, you know, I can, I can be a bit abrupt sometimes. Maybe, maybe I was, and I didn't realise, you know. So, so we internalise that. We look at that and we think, okay, this has caused some kind of massive issue. Um, perhaps I need to address what I'm doing here. 
and uh, it's turned around like that you know constantly and we we get then spells of what's known as intermittent reinforcement so it's not like everything's horrible all the time so we get drawn back into this whole scenario of um well there must have been something everything was horrible yesterday but today everything's fine it's rosy it's great you know i'm i'm loved again maybe it was me i just need to be careful about that part of my behavior or what it is it's alleged that i've done um and this goes on and on and on the cycle of the abuse and it is a cycle of abuse goes goes on and on and on and if we don't recognize that it's a pattern then we're just constantly drawn into this cycle of abuse. It just keeps on going. And I think a big part of it as well is that we don't actually, um, I think we, we can become desensitized to it. And I think on reflection, once you're distanced from these relationships, because again, part of the dynamic with lots of, of, of covert narcissists is there's a real enmeshment kind of dynamic going on there where gradually over time, and it's very slowly, very gradually, bit by bit by bit, we're almost assimilated, you know, we become enmeshed. It's almost like you, you, the two of you become one person. But it's so, so gradual. It's a drip feed um, that, that, that brings about a massive change. But it's so insidious um, and it's, you know, it's so gradual that it can actually become quite overt behaviour and we do become desensitized to it because over over extended periods of time it becomes our norm <laughs> you know it, it, it becomes what life is it becomes normal to us so i think those are um you know some fairly good reasons for for it continuing and you know and they do go on for decades we have people in the group you know some people recognize this quite early on uh, fine great if you can you know recognize it do your best to get out and uh, learn from the experience is always the best advice really but there are those that do go on we we have people um it's not so uncommon I, I thought mine was a little bit uncommon for the length of time going into decades but actually it isn't there's an awful lot of people well into 20 years 30 years um before they're realizing that there is and there's normally some deterioration in the behavior and it, it normally has become more overt and there's very often a catalyst moment where people suddenly go, there's something very not right here. Um, and then begin to sort of Google things. Um, invariably, the, you know, the Google search is, is uh, on controlling or manipulative behavior. And then that's when the word narcissist um, comes to the fore and people start to ask questions around it. But there's also something known as a trauma bond as well. Um, you know, our, our brains actually um, change during this time over this, what can be a very extended period of time, because um, it's a biochemical bond that forms between you um, and any abuser, and particularly where there's this cycle of abuse. So people get very critical of themselves, you know, and certainly other people don't understand how anyone can stay in what is a very abusive psychological relationship for massively extended periods of time. But it comes as a comfort in a way. I mean, it's very sad, but it does come as a comfort, I think, for lots of people to realize that, um, you know, there are actual changes to our brain. And, you know, we, we, can, we can recondition it. We can get back again. You know, they're not permanent. Um, 
But this cycle of abuse, the, the positive reinforcement, the discard, the love bombing, it's all just a constant um, cycle where we're experiencing um, blasts of oxytocin. Um, I'm getting a word wrong here. Oxytocin, which is a heart hormone there, you know, which is like it, it spikes really positive experiences um, together with cortisol and uh, adrenaline. Which is uh, which are two of the ones that uh, that come into the fight and flight mode, which we find ourselves permanently in um, once we're getting into um, an abusive phase of this. Around what people will say, um, you know, walking on eggshells—that's one of the standout things for people. People say, you know, it's just a constant atmosphere. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells. I'm doing everything I can to avoid this kind of situation. Um, but that's like a permanent um, fight or flight response uh, that we just get stuck in. Before the next phase of intermittent reinforcement, where we're getting breadcrumbs of, of um, oxytocin and the, the promise of love, albeit short, uh, short-lived very often. But that keeps us in that cycle, and it can go on for an enormously long period of time. Really, really interesting stuff there. Yeah, so I'm just going to move on to the next question then. And I know, Debbie, in your book, you talk about the discard phase, where often... A narcissist will discard their partner at a particular point towards the end of the relationship. And I just wondered, one of the questions from the Facebook group was someone wanting to know some more thoughts on those who haven't been discarded by their their narc and have chosen to leave bravely themselves. What's what's the catalyst to give that particular person the courage to, to leave before they are discarded themselves? Yeah, the discard phase is brutal. And I think when people do start doing a lot of research on narcissism, um, they can get mixed messages. And, you know, some people will say, oh, the narcissist always leaves or no, the other person always leaves. And then it puts you in the position of like, oh, wait, no, that didn't happen. So that must not be true for me. But it can happen either way. The narcissist can be the one to leave or um, you can be the one to decide to leave. And it takes an incredible amount of strength because it's such a confusing time. And often if you've had a really um, covert narcissist you've been dealing with and you haven't really seen a lot of overt traits, it's during the the discard phase that those overt traits um, come out a lot more. That's when they get a lot more aggressive and that's when they start yelling and that's when they'll, you know, um, speak to you in ways that are just shocking because you've never had, you've never seen anything like this. And this can happen, you know, like Linda was saying, after 20 or 30 years of you've had maybe someone who appeared shy for a long time or really laid back and easygoing. And suddenly they're this person that's just the cruelest individual you've ever experienced. And it's a shock to the system. It's very traumatic. Um, and it's very confusing. And, and it's interesting, because during the discard phase, too, I find that all, you know, they, they are observers, you know, I was thinking when, when Linda said that they're very sensitive, I think one way that comes out is they are very, they have this strong radar, (laughs) and can pick up and, and kind of want to know what your insecurities are and what you've been through and they can use that against you to manipulate you and so in the discard phase that comes out very strongly where 
it's like everything that because you've trusted this person so for so long you've shared everything about yourself with them and everything that you've shared and been vulnerable with them about and been open they will it's like a fire hose where they will take everything that they know will wound you deeply and just obliterate you you know and at the same time um start a smear campaign against you and they'll have what's called their flying monkeys you know um people that are loyal to them that they will you know pit against you and um it's incredibly confusing and not all of it looks the same for everybody except that the the common thread is it's so confusing they do get more overt they get really cruel um if you have kids they use them against you they use them as as chess pieces which is incredibly awful um they use money against you anything any way that they can control you any way they can hold you down when you're going through the most painful time you've ever gone through that's what they do they it's it's like you're looking at this person and you think I have no idea who this is. Who have I been married to all these years? Who have I, um, and I guess I'm talking in, you know, romantic relationship right now. Um, but it's, you just are so stunned and the things they're saying to you are the cruelest things you've ever heard in your life. And this is someone you trusted for years, for decades. And you saw, I do want to go back just touching on what, what Linda said about the, how huge the love bombing phase is. And this is a big player in why we stay with these people for so long, because at the beginning they portrayed themselves in a certain way and they were wonderful. And so that was your initial experience with them so then everything that happens after that you see them through these glasses through these lenses and so if they promise to be at some appointment you were going to go to and they don't show up they always have some excuse so you're like okay well I know they're a good person because I know them as this person um, and so you have years of excusing behavior because you're seeing them through these eyes and so then when the discard comes, it's just, it's just so brutal and so, so incredibly confusing. And oftentimes with narcissists, they move on to someone very quickly and they portray their life as wonderful and everything is just such deep hurt. Could just come in a little bit with that. Um... You know, people are very literal sometimes about this. But, you know, we're trying to fit these things into a box to understand what has happened. Who is this person? Um, understanding is key for people and fundamental in terms of, you know, them going on to uh, any stage of recovery and, and ultimate healing. But, you know, I'd really advise against being too literal in trying to tick, have, a, have a checklist, really. I think people almost have a checklist that they must tick every single box to say, this person is and then assign a label to them um, because it's not that clear you know it's not that clear not every single person will do every single thing and tick every single box uh, and people you know confuse themselves with that and I just say that you know in terms of just of the example being for this you know discarded I've not been discarded 
you can be discarded in any type of relationship well before anybody leaves it. You know, let's not be too literal about what discarded means. Many, you know, many times, many, many times, these relationships have been whittled down to virtually no relationship at all in terms of intimate relationships, uh, shall we say. Um, you know, there can be a disconnect and an emotional discard very early on, you know, which is just as damaging if you know it's just terribly damaging because you know you're crying out for that connection if particularly if you're in an intimate relationship um there's all kinds of ways that people can be discarded beyond somebody physically leaving not every um covert narcissist or overt narcissist uh you know runs off in a relationship with someone else some point blank will not leave you know and just yeah, just because somebody's not leaving doesn't mean to say that all of a sudden all of the right boxes haven't been ticked. So it can't. This can't be a narcissist, you know. They certainly can. What are the the health consequences of of staying with a, a covert narcissist? Enormous, <laughs> absolutely enormous. I'll just sort of leap in on that, Debbie, if you don't mind. This is something that is really uh, neglected by people um, because it's just not really considered, and I think it comes as a real surprise. Um, once we realise what we've been involved with and, uh, and and people start joining the dots about health conditions that they've had, health conditions that are developing and uh, and certainly within the group, you know, there's lots of wow moments um, as people begin to realise just what, what can happen here. Again, as people uh, that, that narcissists are attracted to, um, the fact that we tend to put people first, uh, you know, we're always at the back of the queue back of the line Debbie uh, for our US friends we're always at the back of the line there uh, you know when it comes to but when it comes to ourselves you know we always look after other people first so we're very very we tend to be very poor at looking after our own uh, our own health and our own interests which, <laughs> which is why we're something of a magnet but you know we can be, we're looking at stress we're looking at anxiety we're looking at depression um, a common one that comes up for lots of people thyroid issues lots of that is to do with uh, cortisol and the fight and flight the permanent state of fight and flight that we find ourselves in which is increased levels of cortisol which uh, which work via the thyroid um it, it just, the body isn't designed to be in a permanent state of fight or flight it just isn't that's supposed to be a temporary you know emergency response not a permanent situation and we do find ourselves permanently in that situation although unbeknownst to us at times uh, that can lead to cancer particularly of the thyroid uh, rheumatoid arthritis as a, you know as a stress issue cptsd ultimately which people don't tend to associate insomnia uh, not surprising really that lots of us have uh, awful lot of trouble sleeping uh, and disturbed sleep patterns when we do um, and all kinds of inflammatory diseases really um, are, are known and skin skin conditions like eczema um, seborrheic eczema and there are some that are just never explained you know now this has come about in the group again and this is one of the values of the group um, f fatigue is a massive one and people think it's just, you know, maybe it's work, maybe there are children there, you know, uh, there are, people tend to put all these things down to uh, potentially other issues in the life because people lead busy, complicated lives. But, um, you know, fatigue is a massive one. And, and I mean, severe fatigue, uh, 
um, in people because you're trying to cope with so much clearly. But um, there is a book on this which is referenced an awful lot within the group that I just want to mention. Um, and that's known as the, uh, what well, it's called, the, the Body Keeps the Score. So I don't know if you've heard that, but that's, that's referenced an awful lot, which makes the connections between um, psychological abuse particularly and the impact then on the body. And it's very real. It's very, very real. And there are very real implications for people going forward. And it really does and should be a consideration when people are deciding whether they are going to be staying in these relationships and trying to make things work or they're, they're reaching a decision uh, that, you know, basically the abuse is too much and they want to leave for that reason. But, you know, the connection with physical health really should be considered and, and brought to the fore is super important. Obviously, this podcast is about covert and overt narcissists. And you mentioned before, Linda, that it's not always as black and white as that and people can switch between the two and I and one of the questions from mm. from the Facebook group was do covert narcissists know what they are doing when they change tactics it's difficult getting into you know someone else's mind isn't it well how do we know what people are actually thinking at any specific time um but if you know if somebody's changing a tactic there has to be some thought behind that um it would be a very unusual thing that somebody's changing a tactic uh, if you come into the towards the end of a relationship, um, very unusual if that tactic just happens to be always of benefit to the narcissist. Um, you know, there's no such thing as an accidental narcissist. And lots of these things are, are very, very planned. And, um, you know, we can talk about smear campaigns here. You know, it's not accidental. These are very well thought out plans of how, you know, somebody can be undermined to the point that they will be disbelieved. Their credibility is, is, is trashed. Their reputation is trashed. And it's all in the interests of protecting this, you know, what by this point is a super false self that's, that everybody else is seeing. I think we haven't really mentioned this very much, but everybody else out there and this 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 false image that you know we that was presented to us as we get involved in these relationships and and with parents as well um it's all about maintaining that image so you know so these people go out there and they have fantastic reputations they seem to be doing you know involved with the church and charities um you know, reputations for dealing with, you know, with fairness and equality and diversity and, uh, you know, win awards for it. You know, it's super, super convincing. So, um, you know, it's not just a, 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 a facade that's presented to us. It's a completely false facade that's presented to the world and it's done in a very, very convincing manner. So they set out to protect that at, at all and any cost. So do they know? Yes. Yes, I would say. Generally speaking, they do. And certainly, if you're talking about any type of smear campaign, they certainly do know what they're doing. Absolutely. It's, it's not accidental. Um, you know, and the question I'd ask for that, because it is a thing, I, I got really hung up in my own uh, therapy with this. I really needed to know, was it all intentional? You know, did this person know the harm and the damage they were doing? Or is this a mental health condition that somehow stops them from realising and it just all kind of happens? Because that was my level of understanding. I really didn't have any. And um, it can really be a blocker to us moving forward in our in our own healing journey. I, I really did find that myself. 
lots of it's in the moment. Lots, lots of things are said and done in the moment as well. That is part of what this is. It's an initial knee-jerk response sometimes, and it's just said and done as a projection. You know, I didn't do that. You did that. This is you. This is not me. But uh, there are certain elements as well where it's definitely intentional. And, and if it helps with any of that kind of behavior, the question I always say to people is, think of, of anything that, uh, that you're concerned about and ask yourself, would that behavior continue if someone else walked into the room? Would it continue in the presence of someone else? And if the answer is no, and you've got examples where actually they were just being awful to me and then somebody came in unexpectedly, etc., and the behavior stopped, mm. then it's intentional. They know what they're doing. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. I want to move on to talk about comorbidity. Um, and I, I wondered, Linda, if you can just tell us what that term actually means. I've seen that on, on the Facebook group a few times. Yes. Uh, comorbidity is when there's a you know presence of overlapping um criteria really symptom criteria from other uh, conditions other other personality disorders so the dsm um states uh, contains a number of personality disorders there and we do find um because again you can't put people in boxes here we're talking about people we're not talking about tins of beans uh, which we know which are uniform we know what to expect we know exactly what the contents are going to be we're talking about complex human conditions here so there's very often an overlap in um, other uh, disorders or just symptom criteria. Because I think it's important to say as well um, that, you know, people talk about NPD. You know, my, my, my significant other is, is NPD, dirty dirt. There's no actual diagnosis of that. It might be that um, we, we have this little checklist of our own that we're trying to work out what's happening. And people might tick certain boxes uh, from our own perspective but we're not clinicians and we're not in a position to diagnose anyone and nor would it be fair to. And it's actually quite dangerous to, to do that as well because there's all kinds of uh, complexities around, around some of these conditions. So we do need to be very careful and it also changes what some parts of the behaviours we've been observing um, manifest as. Because if somebody is, um, is say, uh, comorbid with certain of the um, borderline personality disorder traits, then you will see some significant dis uh, differences. So we, we just need to be aware, you know, this is not, it isn't a tick box exercise. It's very, very complex. And um, narcissism, actually, in terms of the, uh, the, the, the cluster B personality disorders. Narcissism is present for every one of those disorders. I was reading an article recently about someone was talking about the uh, the similarities between uh, someone with MPD and someone with Asperger's syndrome. And I'll just very quickly tell you about that. And um, obviously, when I say the term Asperger's syndrome, I should point out that in 2013, the DSM-5 replaced that term with the autism spectrum disorder, so ASD. Um, so anyone diagnosed previous to 2013, you can still refer to them as having Asperger's syndrome. And also, as you were saying, Linda, it's it's, it's obviously to, to talk about differential diagnosis is very complex. And I think comparing disorders could actually be quite confusing. And, you know, it, it's um, we're not medical professionals here. So, you know, obviously, when you read some of these articles, you have to have that in mind. Um, but in this article, it was talking about the similarities between someone with NPD and someone who has Asperger's syndrome. 
and again you know obviously Asperger's is, is part of the autism spectrum and it's a spectrum so you, we can't say we can't generalize and say everyone's the same because that's just not the case but this article was saying that there's very very similar similar behavioral traits uh, between someone with MPD and, and someone with um, you know um, Asperger's for example they talked about someone with Asperger's might give you silent treatment but they, uh, but that's simply because they're struggling to express how they feel, and they're not they're not connected to their emotions. Whereas if you experience silent treatment with someone that's got uh, narcissistic traits, it's it's a deliberate thing to try and manipulate you by draw, withdrawing affection. So you can see that as an example there, a very similar behaviour, but the intent is completely different. And I've done another podcast on this called "Growing Up Queer with Aspergers" with a, a college student in America called Austin. And he basically summed it up by saying people with Asperger's sometimes don't understand social situations and social cues. But someone with MPD you know, uses that knowledge of social cues to control and manipulate you. And that's an important uh, distinction uh, to, to, to be made at the core of it. People with Asperger's have, have less understanding of their emotions. But someone with MPD does things intentionally to further their own sense of worth. Yeah, absolutely, and I think um, I think he's absolutely right in in how he's summed that up. From my, you know, mine is a limited understanding of this as well, and I'm not a clinician. I don't profess to be. Um, I'm not a professional of any type in this. I just have an awful lot of experience, unfortunately. But um, no, I'd agree with that entirely. And we just have to be so careful about labels. It's very understandable that we need to identify, we feel a need to understand what on earth has happened to us and why. Um, Fully get that. But we do have to be so careful when we're assigning labels to anyone. Um, If we get, you know, if we get this wrong, then, you know, we could be leading people down the wrong path altogether. And certainly people within our group, you know, vulnerable people, confused, vulnerable people, desperately seeking answers. And, um, you know, just because maybe somebody within the group may have had uh, a person who's diagnosed as uh, Asperger's and they're suddenly saying, actually, I thought it was MPD and we've gone all down this road and actually it's Asperger's. And, you know, what you're saying on this post, I'm telling you that's Asperger's. You know, it's just we cannot do that. It's far too dangerous. We have to treat all of these things individually um, and with respect. Um, And just do enough in terms of labels, because it is important for us to know what we've been dealing with. But just do enough to satisfy ourselves so that we can move on and we can look towards our own healing. Because then we need to look to ourselves to move on from this rather than keep focusing on the other person. And I always go back to, uh, I think it's in Debbie, well it is in Debbie's book. And I I, found, I thought it was outrageous at the time, but I absolutely understand it now. Um, but you know, it, the, the label doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter. Abuse is abuse is abuse. If you're in a toxic relationship, it doesn't really matter what it is, whether it's comorbid, whether it's NPD, whether it's just one of the of the symptom criteria. We'd never get near a diagnosis because you need at least five of the nine for NPD. But if you've got one of those uh, one of those traits that's identified there and it's sufficiently bad, that can be enough. You don't need to get a full-blown diagnosis. You know, if it's if it's abusive, that should be enough, really, um, in terms of making a decision to, to actively do something about it. What we've been talking about today, how can we bring this out into the public domain, much like any other personality disorder or mental health issue and 
and, you know, and educate so that the, the proper relevant support can be given so it can be understood correctly for all those affected in, in society. Well, by doing things like this, I think, you know, the, the problem with covert narcissism is um, the silence around it all. You know, it's a brave thing to speak up about this for, for anyone. Um, because, you know, these, these are professionally known, you know, in, in, in legal circles, um, the, you know, they're known as high conflict people. And they really are disagreeable, high conflict people, particularly when we've come to the point of leaving or, you know, they've left us and we're in this smear campaign scenario that just goes on and on. It's relentless. And, you know, as victims, we don't have a voice. We lose our voice all the way through these relationships. And then... We are intentionally and actively silenced through smear campaigns and isolation. Isolation is a key tool that's used for people. Again, another reason for the group to try and lessen some of that feeling of, uh, of isolation for everyone. But it needs to be spoken about and we need to have better education in the caring professions, certainly in, in, with therapy. Um, you know, it, it, it amazes me. It just amazed me the lack of knowledge, the lack of training that therapists have it's very very brief you know it doesn't go into much detail at all from what i understand i don't know if that's the same in in in, in, the, in, in the states um debbie but it certainly is in the uk um so we you know we, we for me inputs you know we need to have inputs for people um particularly about covert narcissism we you know and about actually overt narcissism because the the input is very very brief so even when we go to seek help if we're not very fortunate with a therapist that we find who has some perhaps personal knowledge, that's normally how people get to know about this. Um, you know, we can be given bad advice. We can be sent back into a really bad scenario by people misunderstanding the the, uh, the situation that we're facing. And just a quick one on this. Um, you know, narcissism can impact on governments. I'm not, I'm not going to get political on it. Don't worry. But, uh, you know, but we can have political governments. Um, political organisations, political, you know, in terms of employers and organisations. And we do have, um, it's almost like a, almost an agenda, really, that people do not deal with this when it's in the workplace because it's too hard to deal with. And we have people, we have all kinds of people, senior managers, chief executives, all kinds of people who actually engage in uh, narcissistic abuse of employees Generally, generally because if you're threatened by them, it's normally a really good employee and, you know, there's some feeling of threat there. And how these things get worked out eventually, if the employee is fortunate, um, is it ends up with a, a, and again, I don't know what we call this in America, but a compromise agreement. You know, so, you know, this is a nightmare scenario. People are made ill by bullying and the abuse. Um, there you go. We can have a little package to leave. It's never anywhere near what you should be having. Have a little package to leave. On the proviso, you never speak of this again. You know, and that's a background that we're looking at with all this. We're silenced every which way. Uh, and it's endorsed, you know, by, by, by employers as well. And um, getting it out there. So speaking about it and people in the professions have a willingness to listen and learn. Debbie, Debbie what about you? You know, how can we raise more awareness of, of this? Yeah, and Linda's absolutely right with therapists. They, um, I've actually heard from a lot of therapists thanking me for my book and how much it's helped them, which I feel so happy about. I love it when uh, often people will bring my book into their therapist to let them know. And because in when they're going to school, they briefly study 
um, you know, the DSM five traits of narcissism, but of narcissistic personality disorder, but they don't learn anything about the covert type. Because really, this is fairly new information that hasn't been talked about um, very much, really. And so I love it when people bring my book and show therapists. Uh, I think it's great when I think divorce attorneys need to understand this. Um, and I think it'd be great if people brought this book. I've often recommended when people, when I used to coach people around this topic, and they would go be going through the divorce proceedings, which are excruciating. Um, and so it's important that your divorce attorney understands this. So they would often bring my book in and say, would you please read just, just the chapter on the traits and the chapter on manipulation and control tactics? Because we need to understand together, you know, what's happening. Um, I'm also actively, I actually self-published this book. I did not know when I wrote it that it would take off like it has all over the world. And I hear from so many people asking if I can translate it into so many different languages. And I want to, but I don't have the funds to do that. So I'm actually now actively looking for um, literary agents, publishers um, that I can work with to get the word out more. So yeah, if there's anyone listening that's connected to any publishers or literary agents that um, would want to help me do that, I would, I mean, feel free to contact me through my, through my website. Um, but those are some ways I think of, you know, how to get this word out in addition to what Linda said. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. I just want to um, ask you both a final question. And, 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 and this is what I do with all my podcast guests. And we're going to go back to Linda for this one first. And I just wonder if you had a chance to give your younger self some advice, what would you say to think about maybe when you were seven or eight? What would you what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, good question. Um for me, I'm not going to say trust myself because I think, you know, we, we we have experiences through childhood that sometimes lead us down this path. We're not always entirely responsible for um, for how we turn out in life. But um, I would be saying um, not to be so trusting. I think it's a fairly obvious one. And to just be to be aware, really, that these things exist, you know, and these things this should be taught in schools. You're not talking about getting it out there. Debbie's book should be on the curriculum. <laughs> And Debbie, then, what about you? What, what, what advice would you give your younger self? I would say two things. <laughs> I would say trust yourself. <laughs> um, but the way I would say it to myself is your body is incredibly intelligent and knows before your mind knows. <laughs> so if you're having any experience with someone and your stomach is tight or you notice you start feeling weak or your head feels clouded, know that there's nothing wrong with you, but that your body is alerting you to something you need to pay attention to. And there's something going on with the person that you are dealing with. Um, so don't give your power away to them if they're explaining something else that steers you away from your body. And I would also tell my little wonderful self <laughs> um, that not everybody is as they appear to be and make sure that any relationship I'm in brings more life to me. 
and to be cautious of any relationship where I notice my energy draining, even if it gives me life at first, if maybe a year down the road or two years down the road, my energy is draining to really look at that and that that's another way my body is telling me something is off that I need to pay attention to. Debbie, Linda, thanks for raising awareness of these really important issues. Thank you, John. Thank you, John.